Let's turn to Acts chapter 13. We will read verses 13 through 33. Now hear God's word. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilling them by condemning him, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever. Pray with me together today as we come to consider God's word. Our Father, as always, we come with humble hearts when we come to Your Word, recognizing, Father, that this is Your Word, that this is not just things that men in their finite understandings 
wrote about you, but these are the words that men filled with the Holy Spirit wrote because you breathed out your word through them. And so we recognize that this is your word, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible, Father, that it is full of power, that it is full of life. And so God, would you give us by the same Holy Spirit who breathed out these words the ability to understand them? And Father, more importantly than just understanding them, to be able to believe them and to trust them and to lean on them and to be transformed by them. Father, Your Word is awesome. And what it reveals about You and Your Son is awesome. And so we are here this morning with open hearts, Father, to be filled with the living and active Word. And we pray, we pray that the words from my mouth and that the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in Your sight. And we pray it in the great name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I am excited about what we're going to look at together in God's Word this morning. And at the same time that it's exciting to me, because as I was studying and, and reading and focusing on what, what I felt like God wanted us to focus on, I did. I got, I got really excited about it Saturday and Sunday, or, or Friday and Saturday rather. But at the same time as it's exciting to me, I feel like this morning we We all ought to just take our shoes off because we are on holy ground here with what God is going to reveal to us from His Word about the nature of His glorious Son. And so we're going to look together at a portion of God's Word here and unpack it from other portions of God's Word in a way that I think is going to blow our minds in terms of who Jesus is. In our passage this morning in Acts chapter 13, as we come back to our study of the book of Acts together, what we have here in verses 33, really through the end of the chapter, is the first recorded sermon that was preached by the Apostle Paul. Not the first sermon that Paul actually preached, to be sure, because Luke Luke tells us that that very soon after Paul's conversion, back in Acts chapter 9, he was already preaching up in Damascus. And then in the book of Galatians, Paul himself says that prior to the events that went on here in chapter 13, that he had been preaching for three years when he was going all throughout the region of Arabia. And here in the first part of Acts chapter 13 that we looked at, together two weeks ago, Luke told us that Paul was essentially serving as the pastor of the church in in Antioch over in Syria before the Holy Spirit commissioned him and Barnabas to leave and to begin taking the gospel to the Gentiles, which they did all throughout the island of Cyprus where they preached in all of the synagogues and and even in the palace, remember, of the proconsul there in Cyprus. And and they they were wielding the power of God. They were wielding the power of the gospel. They were doing it against satanic oppression and opposition. And and they were seeing the, the Lord work powerfully and mightily to bring many people to faith in Jesus Christ all over the island of Cyprus. Now verse 13 here of chapter 13 says that the next leg of this journey that God had sent them on took them from Cyprus now up to Asia Minor and to the city of Perga. It says, Now Paul and his companions 
set sail from Paphos, which was a city on the western coast of the island of Cyprus, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now you can find this place, Perga, on the maps in the back of your Bible, kind of in the middle of the southern coast of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, just above that big gulf that you see there, and to the north of the little port town of Italia, which was the seaport that they would have landed at after they sailed from Paphos in Cyprus. And at the end of verse 13 there, Luke mentions, and he almost mentions it just in passing here, he says that as soon as they got to Perga, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. And you remember from a couple of weeks ago that this John is John Mark, who would go on to write the Gospel of Mark. And here it says that he leaves, and and Luke doesn't give us any reason why he left Paul and Barnabas and returned to Jerusalem instead of going on with them to preach the Gospel all throughout the various regions that Paul and Barnabas would go to. But later in Acts 15, we're going to see that after Paul and Barnabas go on this missionary journey and return from this trip, they decide at some point to go back to all of the cities that they had visited and all the places where churches had been planted and and check on those churches and see how things are doing. And, And during the planning of that return trip, Barnabas says to Paul, hey, let's take John Mark with us. But in Acts 15, it says that Paul thought that it was best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them and had not gone with them to do the work. And the word withdrawn there in Acts 15 and verse 38 is a word that's often used in the sense of desertion. Whatever happened here between John Mark and Paul and Barnabas... Paul took it as a, as a desertion and didn't feel comfortable working with John Mark for a while after that. Whatever happened, it did not sit well with Paul at all. And we're going to have to get back to that when we come to chapter 15 in a few weeks. But here, just by way of backdrop, in verse 14, Luke seems to indicate that after John Mark left... Paul and Barnabas didn't spend a whole lot of time in the city of Perga. They they waited to preach there until the return journey, where Luke's going to tell us in chapter 14 and verse 25 that they did spend a little bit of time in Perga preaching. But at this point, they moved quickly on from Perga. They didn't stop there. And they made their way to another city named Antioch. This is not the same Antioch that they had left back in Syria where that big church had started to grow and thrive over to the east. This Antioch is a different Antioch, a different city with the same name in the region of Asia Minor that's known as Pisidia, which is up to the north of the region of Pamphylia where they had landed their boat and And it's just to the west of the region of Galatia. And this city is known as Antioch in Pisidia, or Pisidian Antioch. Now, now we don't really know, again, why Paul and Barnabas bypassed Perga so quickly. 
Some scholars think that it was for health reasons. Paul actually says in the book of Galatians, and and he wrote the book of Galatians not too long after what happens here in Acts chapter 13, and he says in Galatians that he had been very, very ill for a time. And that may have been what was going on here. Some scholars speculate, and it is speculation, we don't have any proof of it, but they speculate that maybe Paul caught some disease like malaria on the trip from Cyprus up to Asia Minor, and that he needed to get up out of the hot, humid, coastal area of Pamphylia because he was suffering so much, and up into the, the cooler mountains of Pisidia and Galatia. And that's very possible, even though we don't really know for sure. But at any rate, they traveled right away to this city up in the mountains called Pisidian Antioch. And... What we need to understand, first of all, is that that journey was a long, hard, tedious, treacherous, arduous, dangerous journey. It's a road that's a little over 100 miles long that winds up into the Taurus Mountains. Steep, narrow, small little road. And often they would be walking right on the edges of cliffs as they made their way up into the mountains. They would have had to cross two rivers, which very often flooded unexpectedly as as runoff from the rainfall up in the mountains would come rushing down. And so that would have been treacherous for them. And the road to Pisidian Antioch was not a a controlled road by by the Romans. It wasn't patrolled. It wasn't protected by Roman soldiers like many of the main highways would have been and so it was sort of a notorious road where thieves and robbers would sort of hide out in the cracks and the rocks and then ambush travelers as they made their way along this road and beat them and take all of their possessions and their money and and you remember maybe that in the book of second corinthians paul wrote that he had been on frequent journeys and in danger from rivers and from robbers and other things. And he may very well have been thinking about this journey that he made with Barnabas to get up to Pisidian Antioch through the mountain pass there. And when he and Barnabas finally got there, when they did make it over that treacherous mountain road by the grace of God, they followed their, their typical strategy that we saw last time as they went all throughout Cyprus. On the Sabbath day, they would go straight to the synagogue where the Jewish people of, of the city that they were in would gather together for worship. And they would go there and seek an opportunity to be able to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jews who were gathered in the synagogue because Jesus is the fulfillment of every scripture that they were reading and teaching and that God had made promises through. So verse 15 here says, after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch sent a message to Paul and Barnabas. They saw him sitting out there, recognized them somehow as being teachers of the law, teachers of the Old Testament scriptures. And they sent a message and said, brothers, if you have any word of exhortation, any word of encouragement for the people, say it. They're inviting Paul and Barnabas to to give the teaching now that the reading of the word has, has been done. And that was a customary thing to do in synagogues if a 
Jewish rabbi, if a Jewish teacher was, was visiting the synagogue in that city from another area, they would invite him to preach. They would invite him to deliver a teaching on the Old Testament Word of God after it was read. And we know that Paul had been a rabbi, right? Before he had been converted to faith in Jesus Christ, he was a student of Gamaliel, who was a very, very famous and well-regarded rabbi. So when Paul came to a synagogue to worship on the Sabbath, he probably came dressed in the unique kind of clothing that the rabbi would wear as, as distinct from what the common Jewish people would wear. And that's probably how the leaders of this synagogue recognized him, just based on his, his clothing. And that's why they invited him to teach. And so here, what we've got is not the first sermon Paul ever preached, but the first one that was recorded for us in the Word of God. And in this sermon, Paul focuses on two main characters and three main themes. And my intention earlier in the week was to cover all of it with you today. Who are the two main characters of this sermon and what are the three main themes? And I got into the two main characters and completely ran out of room. And so we're going to have to cover most of it next week. Because what we're going to talk about this week is who this sermon is truly all about. The two main characters that Paul preaches about here are God the Father and Jesus Christ, who Paul proclaims to be the only begotten, the only begotten Son of God. And we're going to talk about what that means. Look down, all the way down at verse 32. Paul is going to spend all of these verses between verse 13 and 33. He's going to spend all of that time preaching about God the Father's relationship to Jesus Christ in order to come to this key, central, awesome point in verses 32 and 33. And, and, and what he's doing here in these verses is he's quoting from the Old Testament Scriptures in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7, in order to proclaim to these Jewish people that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God in Scripture to raise up a begotten Son who would be the everlasting King and Savior of the world. Look what he says. He says in verse 32, we bring you the gospel. We bring you the good news, right? That what God promised to the fathers, what He promised through all of the Old Testament Scriptures, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Also, as it is written in the second Psalm, You are my Son, Today I have begotten you, and I will tell you this right now, those few words, you are my son, that God the Father says to Jesus, you are my son, today I have begotten you, are filled with some of the most majestic, mysterious, glorious truth about the nature of our God that you could imagine. And that's why we're just going to spend all our time unpacking it today. That is the main point of Paul's sermon. It's that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God and that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited, anticipated Son of God 
who was prophesied throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures. And for our time today, I'm going to focus first just on those two verses in, in verse 32 and 33, and on the Old Testament passages that Paul is quoting and alluding to, so that we can understand what the Jews who Paul was preaching to understood about the promised Old Testament person who is called the Son of God. What does that mean? What would they have understood by that title, Son of God? Next week, we're going to dive more fully into the text of of the rest of this sermon that Paul preached and see how he proclaims that Jesus is the promised Son of God by showing us three main things. By showing us that in Jesus Christ, all of the sovereign purposes of God for all of human history come to a glorious culmination. All of history is all about Him and His glory. Secondly, that in Jesus Christ, all of the divine promises of God are gloriously fulfilled. And then thirdly, that in Jesus Christ alone, all of the redeeming work of God is gloriously accomplished. Those are Paul's three main points in the sermon that he preached there in Pisidian Antioch. In Jesus, all of God's sovereign purposes for history are gloriously culminated. In Jesus, all of God's divine promises are gloriously fulfilled. In Jesus, all God's redeeming work is gloriously accomplished. And all three of those points are anchored to who Jesus is as the begotten Son of God who was prophesied about all throughout the Old Testament, and that's what I want for us to focus on together this morning. Now, for the Jewish people that would have been worshiping there in that synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, nothing was more important to their understanding of God, to their understanding of the nature of God, than the truth that there is only one true God, right? That's what they believe, and we believe that with them, because we believe in the God who reveals Himself in the Old Testament. And that belief that there is only one true God distinguished the Old Testament revelation of God from virtually every other religion in history. Because most of the other religions believe in many gods, pantheons of gods. And that's what we call polytheism. And that's most of the world's religions. Whereas in Scripture, God reveals that He is one. And that there are no other gods besides Him alone. It's what we call monotheism, right? One God one God only. So for the Jews, and rightly so, the very definition of God is summed up in that all-important verse that they would quote over and over and over in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, where God says about Himself, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? There are no other gods. There is only one God, and His name is Yahweh in Hebrew. I am. 
And that name of God, that covenant name, is, is indicated in our English Bibles wherever in the Old Testament the word Lord is spelled with all capital letters. That's how in English we render that Old Testament name Yahweh that is unique to the one true God. And that's exactly how he's referred to there in Deuteronomy 6.4. Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. That's the foundation, right? Of the Jews' understanding of the nature of God. He's singular, he's unique, and there is no other. And, and, this is where you need to put your thinking caps on. All throughout the Old Testament... The one true God reveals Himself, always insisting that He is one. He also speaks of Himself often in a plural sense. Sometimes using the same name of God, Yahweh, in two distinct senses in the same verse, in the same passage. Like, for example, in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 24, which is speaking about God's judgment against the sinful cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? It says that Yahweh, the one God, rained sulfur and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, which He sent down from Yahweh, who is in heaven. The Yahweh who walked among His people on earth, sent down fire from Yahweh who is in heaven. Or Exodus chapter 12, where Yahweh sends a destroyer against the Egyptians, and the destroyer is also named Yahweh. Doesn't mean there's two gods. Or in Exodus Chapter 33, where Yahweh tells Moses that because of the stubbornness of Israel, Yahweh's not going to go with them into the promised land. Instead, He's going to send a messenger with them. And He calls the messenger His presence. Interesting. And then, in the book of Numbers, the messenger of His presence is named Yahweh. Yahweh says, I'm not going with you because you've been stubborn and obstinate. Instead, I'm going to send Yahweh. What? The one God who is named Yahweh in the Old Testament speaks of Himself in terms of distinct persons who are named Yahweh. Now, now even many, many Jewish teachers during the Old Testament times, they recognized this, they understood this, and they spoke of two distinct Yahwehs. They knew there was only one God and His name was Yahweh, but they knew somehow He was manifested in distinct persons. who are named Yahweh. They didn't mean two distinct gods. They didn't mean two distinct beings who are both God. Because they always insisted rightly, correctly, with Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, that Yahweh their God is one. And at the same time, they recognize that Yahweh their God sometimes clearly speaks of Himself in terms of more than one distinct person. And, in addition to that, right there in Deuteronomy 6.4 where Yahweh says that He is the one God, the word for God 
that he uses to describe himself and that he uses all over the place, in fact, in the Old Testament, is actually a plural word. The word for God in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word El or Eloah. And the plural form of the word Eloah is the word Elohim. The Im. At the end of that word is the suffix of that word is, is the standard masculine plural suffix. If you want to take a word and make it plural, you add Im if it's a masculine word, which Eloah is. And see, only here, only in this Bible, only in the Old Testament Scriptures, is that plural form of Eloah found for one God, one being, to speak of Himself in a plural sense, Elohim. Interesting, right? So literally in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, God says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh Elohim, plural, Yahweh is one. Singular. One essence. And so see, there is embedded into God's divine self-revelation of His own nature in the Old Testament Scriptures the truth that there is only one God and that He exists in more than one person. And if that blows your brain's circuitry, it's okay. Because if there wasn't mystery to the essence of God, it would just mean He's like us. And we could fully grasp Him, and then He would not be the glorious God who He is. The reason why trying to understand the triune nature of our God, that He is one essence and three persons, is is difficult for us, is simply because our finite creature brains can't possibly fully comprehend the awesome reality of the divine nature of the Creator who is our triune God. And it's also because He is utterly unique as the one true triune God. There's nothing and no one like Him. There's nothing to compare to Him. There is no analog. There is no analogy in this world that we can say, oh, that's what God's like. No, there is nothing that God is like. He is unique and He is glorious in His uniqueness. Nothing compares to Him in the essence of His divine triune nature. But what we do understand because He's told us is that in His Word He reveals Himself as one and as three. Because He didn't only reveal Himself in the Old Testament Scriptures where He starts to allude to the fact that there is distinction in terms of personhood in in His nature. He also breathed out the New Testament Scriptures where he, where he reveals even more about His divine nature. And that while He is one, in terms of His being, in terms of His essence, He is three in terms of those distinct persons who for all of eternity equally share that one divine essence, that one divine nature. And so we come to understand clearly from God's Word that the one true God is Father Son and Holy Spirit. Ever three, 
ever one. They are all distinct persons. They're not, they're not parts of the one being of God such that you could divide Him up. He's indivisible. They're not pieces that can be divided from the one essence of God. And they're not different roles that the one God plays. That's an analogy that some people falsely try to use. It's, well, it's like me. I'm a, I'm a husband, oftentimes to my wife, Wendy, and I'm a father, in that sense, to my sons, Justin and Travis and Spencer, and I'm also a son to my parents. And they say, that must be what... No, no. No, because I am one person who plays those three roles. But the persons of Father and Son and Holy Spirit are distinct from one another, even though they are all equally the one essence of God. Not three equal gods, one God who is eternally and unchangeably three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, ever three and ever one. And now... I'm going to add to it. We're going to blow our minds a little more here this morning. In the Old Testament Scriptures, the one triune God speaks and promises to send the Son as an eternal Savior and King who will deliver His people and save them from their sins and establish an everlasting kingdom where we will dwell with Him forever. And see, that had been the great hope of the Jewish people all throughout their history. And in Acts 13, Paul is proclaiming to them that all of their deepest hopes have been realized in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the promised, begotten Son of God. Now I want you to turn with me to your Old Testament. And we're going we're gonna to learn what this means, that Jesus is the begotten Son of God. Turn to the book of 2 Samuel in your Old Testament. 2 Samuel. And look at chapter 7. It's a very, very important chapter concerning King David and a promise that God made to King David that He would fulfill through David's descendant, Jesus. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes this grand promise. He says in verse 8 of 2 Samuel 7 that He had chosen David, right? You remember Saul had been made to be the king of Israel and then Saul was unfaithful and treacherous and fell on his own sword in battle and so there needed to be a new king and God would select him and He selected David from among the sons of Jesse. They worked their way down the line. Remember, well, here's my big strong son. No, not him. Here's the handsome one. No, not him. Well, aren't there any others? Well, there's my little squatty runt son who's just a shepherd boy. You can't want him. Oh, yeah, he's the one. He's God's man. He's the man after God's own heart. Right? So, God had chosen David, verse 8 of 2 Samuel 7, to be the king of Israel. When David was a young shepherd boy tending the sheep. And verse 9, God had been with David as the king wherever David went. He had, he had, God had cut off all of David's enemies from before him and blessed David and said to David that he would make for David a great name. 
and appoint a place for His people to dwell where, verse 10, they would never be disturbed or afflicted again because that was David's heart. He was a man after God's heart and God's heart cared for His people and and David didn't care for his own esteem. He cared for the people. And God said, I'm going to give them a place to dwell where they'll never be disturbed or afflicted again. And that's what David wanted and longed for, the great blessing and protection of the people. And then God said in verse 11, I will give you rest from all of your enemies. And then God said to David in verse 12 there of 2 Samuel 7, When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers. What does he mean? Yeah, when you die, David, because see, that David was mortal, right? David was a, a human mortal being like you and I. He didn't, he didn't live forever, but God said to him, when you die, don't worry, because the people that you care about more than yourself are going to continue to be blessed. The promise of the kingdom of peace for them won't be over when you die, David. Because I am going to raise up from your offspring after you one who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Notice the singular pronoun his there. God has in mind a specific descendant of David who is going to establish this kingdom of peace that God is promising. And speaking about that specific descendant of David, God says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And when God says forever, God means he's not speaking just in hyperbole of a long time, he means forever. So this one specific descendant of David who will rule over the kingdom of God is going to rule over it forever. He's going to rule over it for eternity. Which means, see, it can't be David himself because David's going to die. And and whoever this descendant is, he can't be like David. Can't be mortal. Can't be subject to death. The descendant would have to be immortal and never die so that he could rule forever forever. And then God says about that coming immortal descendant of David. This is verse 14 now, 2 Samuel 7. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, of course, we know who it is, right? Because we've got the benefit of all of the completed scriptures, including the New Testament canon and 2,000 years of people studying them and reading them and understanding We know who the promised immortal descendant of David is, right? God tells us, God reveals to us in no uncertain terms that it's Jesus who's the promised descendant of David. It's proven in the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, the term son of David is one of Matthew's favorite titles for Jesus. He uses it 16 times throughout the Gospel of Matthew. It's it's used also to speak of Jesus in Mark and Luke's Gospel as well. And in the book of Hebrews, 
in chapter 1 and verse 5, the author of Hebrews explicitly says that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 here. The author of Hebrews is talking about the absolute supremacy of Jesus. He's greater than anything. Even the angels. He's supreme over the angels even. And here's how he proves it. He says, for to which of the angels did God ever say what he said here in 2 Samuel 7? I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. He says, Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. It's a direct quote from 2 Samuel 7 and verse 14. Jesus is the promised descendant of David. Jesus is the son of David. And, most importantly, Jesus is the one who God Himself, who Yahweh Himself, calls His Son. The Son of David is the Son of God. See? And that brings us to the other all-important Scripture where God speaks of His Son, which is the the scripture that Paul quotes over in Acts 13 and verse 33 from Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. Turn there. Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. Now you're familiar probably with Psalm 2. We read it quite often here in this church. The psalm itself doesn't list its author as some of the other psalms do. But we know its author because if you remember back to Acts chapter 4 and verse 25, remember Peter and John had been arrested in Jerusalem and then providentially they had been let go, right? The, the rulers of the earth had raged against the apostles, but providentially they weren't allowed to be killed and, and they were set free. And so when they were set free, they went back to all of the other disciples in Jerusalem and told them about what had happened. And the other disciples started praising God in light of Psalm 2, which is all about the rulers of the earth raging against God and His anointed, but God triumphing over them. And so they said, this is just a manifestation of that, right? And in that they said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David your servant said by the Holy Spirit. And then they quote Psalm 2. So they attribute in Acts 4 the words of Psalm 2 to the authorship of David. And so we know David did write Psalm 2 because Acts 4.25 says so. The disciples quote directly from it. And they acknowledge that God has sovereignly thwarted the rulers of the earth that raged against Him by providentially letting Peter and John go unscathed. And this psalm, Psalm 2, that's what it's all about. It's all about the sovereign, holy God's victory over the wicked kings and rulers of this world who rage against Him and stand against the rule and the authority of God and His anointed two distinct persons as the rulers of the earth say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their courts for us. We will not be bound by their will or their authority or their law. And David says that when the rulers of the earth do that, 
and act that way and rebel against God, God, who sits in heaven on His sovereign throne, laughs and holds them in derision because He's not threatened by them. He's not intimidated by them one little bit because He's he's God. He's the one, true, eternal, all-powerful, holy God. And He says that one day, He's going to speak to all of the rebellious world rulers in His wrath. And He says that in opposition to their puny rule, their laughable reign on the earth, God has set His King over all of them on Zion, His holy hill. And in some way, that refers to David, right? Because David is the king that God has installed right there on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. But in some sense, David himself knew. And so did the Jewish people that ultimately Psalm 2 is talking about somebody greater than David because in this psalm, eternity is at stake. The God-anointed King Himself lets us know who He truly and ultimately is who rules over everything. Verse 7, this is what Paul's quoting in Acts 13. He says, this is the Anointed One now speaking. The One who is distinct from Yahweh. But who is Yahweh? He says, I will tell of the decree. And he means the eternal decree of the eternal God. A divine decree. A sovereign mandate made by God that was made in eternity past. Before anything had been created. Before there was time. When all there was, was the eternal triune God. God decreed this in eternity past. Verse 7 of Psalm 2. The Lord, Yahweh, the one true God said to the Anointed One, You are My Son. Today I have begotten you. Today there in verse 7 is the day of eternity past. There's no one else besides God. There's no one for him to speak this to outside of himself. And Yahweh says to this anointed one who is not outside of himself, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. God the Son was begotten by God the Father in eternity past, before the foundations of the world. Now again, if you took your thinking cap off for a minute, put it back on. If you left it on, strap it down. Because this is another one of those circuit-blowing realities about the eternal nature of the triune God that the Bible reveals that transcends the, the limits of our finite minds. That word, begotten, what does that mean? Psalm 2.7 Paul quotes it, Acts 13.33. John loves to use this word to refer to Jesus, right? 
He is the only begotten Son of God. What does it mean? In Hebrew, which is where all this comes from, and then in Greek when they translated it, and when Paul spoke it, and when John spoke it, it's a word that means simply to come forth from. And when it's used of human beings, it's normally used to refer to a child coming forth from his father. Which means what when we're talking about human beings? Birth. When a child comes into being, right? In time, right? That's what begotten means. And when a human child comes into being, when his father begets him, the father imparts his own nature to him. And that's really the substance of what the word begotten means. Ultimately, it's not a reference to when someone comes into being. It means that whenever they do, they are imparted with the nature of their father, right? Genetically, when we're talking about human beings. When my sons were born, they, they were born with something of my nature in them, genetically. They come from me, and, and, and it means they're humans. When I begat my sons, they, they came out here. They didn't come out monkeys or primates. They're humans because they share my nature, having been begotten by me. That's what's at the heart of this word begotten. But see here, God is not talking about human beings. He's talking about Himself as the divine being. And He's not talking about time. He's talking about eternity. And what He says is that in eternity past, the Son was begotten. The Son came forth from the Father's essence and was imparted with the Father's divine nature as God. Now be careful. Because again, we're not talking about time. We're talking about eternity. This doesn't mean that the Son of God came into being at some point in time. It doesn't mean that there was some time when He didn't exist yet. Because again, we're talking about eternity. So what this means is that in an eternal sense, God the Father communicated the divine essence of deity to God the Son, such that for all eternity, the two distinct persons of Father and Son, and this is what makes them distinct, they are eternally of the same substance and essence together as God, as deity, as divine. Because even though the Father is distinct from the Son, because the Son is eternally begotten by the Father as the Son in eternity past, even though that's true, they are both together and eternally equal in every way as God in substance. Because the Son is eternally begotten, not made, as the Nicene Creed puts it, eternally begotten of the Father. And see, this awesome, mind-bending reality, 
This is exactly how they are both one as God and distinct as Father and Son. This mind-blowing truth that God's Word reveals is exactly how the triune God is triune. Is ever three and ever one. The one true God is not divided into three separate parts. There are not three separate gods. The one God eternally exists as one simple, undivided, indivisible essence. And also, there is personal differentiation within the one being of God. He eternally exists in the three persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the distinct person of the Son is the Son. Specifically the Son because for all of eternity He has been begotten by the Father. For all eternity, even before He was born as a child and incarnate in Bethlehem into this world, Hebrews 1.6 said, He has been and forever will be the only begotten Son of God. And that's a title that's used for Him throughout the New Testament, right? Again, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And that eternal Sonship, see, is so important to understanding who He is. As God and as the second person of the triune essence. He is the Son who not only eternally bears the divine nature of His Father, but who, when He became incarnate in this world as a human child named Jesus in in Bethlehem, was entirely devoted to the will of the Father. Because that's His personal relationship to the person of the Father who begat Him. And that's exactly why when His disciples told Him, remember in John 4, He was at the well and they said, you need to eat, Jesus. You're hungry, Jesus. What did he say? He said, you know, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. As the eternally begotten son of the father, he he wasn't incarnate. He didn't come. He wasn't there to satisfy his own hunger or any other human desire or appetite because he's the Son. He's devoted to the will of the Father who begat him in eternity past. He was there as the eternally begotten Son become incarnate in human flesh for the singular purpose of satisfying the will of the Father. And every desire and purpose of God the Father. Which is why Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That relationship to the Heavenly Father is what it means for Him to be the Son of God 
who is God the Son. It means that He was the chosen vessel, the chosen person to carry out all of the eternal purposes of the triune God in this world, in the universe, in creation. Back in 2 Samuel verse 7, remember God spoke to David as His son. But ultimately... Because David was just a type. David was just a a forerunner, a foreshadowing of the true Son of God who would come and establish the everlasting kingdom of God even after David died. In Psalm chapter 2, same thing. The Jewish people in the Old Testament understood that in some sense, this psalm that was written by David was, was about David in some prototypical kind of sense. God had established David as the king there on Mount Zion, but they knew ultimately that this psalm is, is about more than David. It's about the one who was to come from David. It's about the Messiah. It's about the immortal and eternal king who would rule over all of creation with a rod of iron. And when Jesus was born, listen to this. Listen to what Nathanael said to Jesus in John chapter 1 and verse 49. You remember that episode? Where Jesus knew who Nathanael was before the two of them had ever met? And when Nathanael asked how that was possible, you've never seen me, I've never seen you, how do you know who I am? Jesus said, well, before Philip called you to come down here and meet me, when you were sitting under the fig tree, Nathaniel, I saw you. Miraculous, right? Nathaniel knew it. Supernatural, right? Nathaniel understood that and he said to, Je- or he said to Jesus, Rabbi, truly, you are the Son of God. The one true son who the scriptures had spoken of. And then Nathanael said to the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Because they understood that the true king, the ultimate king, the eternal king over the everlasting kingdom would be the son of God who is somehow God himself. As the eternal Son of God who came into this world devoted to accomplishing the eternal purposes of His Father, Jesus is the one who is the promised King, who does have ultimate authority over all of creation, who is preeminent above everything. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent, right? Paul said in Colossians 1 and verse 18. His eternally begotten Sonship defines the relationship of God the Son to God the Father. Defines His role as the Messiah who came into this world as the Sovereign King, as the Savior of His people, and also defines His nature as the eternal God who He is. In John chapter 10 and verse 30, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, said what to His disciples as He taught them about the eternal life that He had come to give to them? They must have been going, eternal life? 
There's a lot that, that might cause me to lose it. How, how can I be sure that it's eternal? Right? He said that Jesus said that for everyone who he gave eternal life to, they will never perish. And no one would ever snatch them out of his hand. Well, how could he be so sure? Because he went on to say, My Father, Yahweh, who has given all of them to me, is greater than anyone. So no one will be able to snatch them out of my Father's hand, right? He's God. The Father is God. No one's greater than the Father. No one's greater than God. So none of the ones that the Father gave to the Son to save could be snatched away, right? And then Jesus said what? To really seal the deal and to make the certainty of eternal life ultimately certain, Jesus said to them, I and the Father are one. Distinct persons, but one God. One all-powerful Yahweh from whom no one can snatch you away. You see, His Sonship is what makes Him simultaneously distinct from the Father and equal to the Father as the Almighty God. Isn't it glorious? Do you fully understand it? No? Good. Praise God that He is mysteriously, awesomely glorious. All of this is precisely what Paul is talking about in Colossians chapter 1 when he says this about God. He says, He, the eternal God, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. And then Paul says this about the beloved Son of God in the very next verse, verse 15 of Colossians 1, he says, the Son is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. The eternal Son of God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ is the invisible God made visible in human flesh. And He, as the Son of God, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. The One in whom all the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, Colossians 2.9, right? For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, Colossians 1.19, right? He is the only One who is able, as the God who He is, to forgive our sins to redeem us with an eternal redemption, to deliver us from the domain of darkness, and to reign over us and with us for all of eternity in the everlasting kingdom of His glory and righteousness. If He's not fully God, and if He's not the Son of God, He can't do any of that. He is the radiance of the glory of God, Hebrews 1.3 proclaims, and the exact imprint of His divine nature, and as such, He upholds the whole universe by the word of His power. When Nathanael saw the divine power of God on display in Jesus, he said to Jesus, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. When Jesus exercised divine authority over the wind and the waves and the storm on the Sea of Galilee in Matthew 14, 
What did the disciples know that he was and proclaim him to be? Truly, you are the Son of God. Because they knew that the true Son of God, long prophesied and promised in the Old Testament, is truly God the Son. And this is who Paul proclaimed Jesus to be to those Jewish people who were gathered together to worship God, Yahweh. In the city of Pisidian Antioch there in Acts 13 and in the synagogue. He's not just some man that God sent. He is the Son of God. He is God the Son. He is Yahweh. He is the promised, prophesied Son of David who is the Son of God. He is the one who was eternally begotten of the Father. God the Father. The exact imprint of His nature. The full radiance of the glory of God. The promised, eternal, immortal Messiah. The Savior and the King of the world for all of eternity. He is the whole fullness of God who is pleased to dwell in human form. That's who Jesus is. Do you you get that when you think on Jesus? Do you get that mind-bending, mind-blowing, completely overwhelming sense of, of how glorious Jesus is? How awesome, how incomprehensibly great Jesus is? He's your Savior. The Son of God, the begotten one, is your Lord, is your King, is your God, is your life. And if you think that there is something in this creation, anything in this world, in this universe, in all of creation, that is more interesting than Him, that that captivates your attention more, that fascinates you more, that is worthy of your attention, your devotion, your adoration, that is a better anchor for your soul, that is a better source of your hope. If you think that, then then my prayer today is that Jesus' glorious revelation of Himself and His living and active Word here will, will absolutely crush and demolish all of the idols of your heart and make you go, there is nothing like Him There is nothing as awesome as He is, as the Son of God. And that that would ignite in you a longing to learn more about His awesome, mind-blowing glory. And that it would ignite in you, ignite in you a passion to always be praising Him and worshiping Him as the God who He is. And that it would ignite in you an urgency to draw near to Him and to commune with Him. And to be filled with all the fullness of the God who He is. And with all the abundant grace that He alone is capable of giving to you. Because that's what life is in Him. And so as we close here. And as we come now to to sing praises to His name. And to draw near to Him at this table and to receive His grace. Let me close with this. And let the prayer of the Apostle Paul in these words in Ephesians 3 that I'm going to read, let that be realized in you today and in his church today. Paul says, 
having himself meditated for long years now by the time he writes these words on the great, awesome, incomprehensible glory of Jesus Christ. He says, for this reason, Ephesians three fourteen. for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ, the only begotten Son, may dwell in your hearts through faith in order that you, being rooted and grounded in His love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, amen, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God in Him. Can you say amen to that prayer? So pray with me, and then we'll sing praises to the glorious Son of God, who is eternally God the Son. Our God and our Father, truly You are beyond comprehension. You reveal Yourself to us, and we understand, Father, In our limited capacity to understand, we understand what you have revealed, and yet we know that our knowledge of you is not your knowledge of yourself. That your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that your ways are higher than our ways, and that in that sense, truly, you are ineffable, incomprehensible, and awesome as the great God who is one and who is three in person, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And Father, we give You praise that You have begotten Your Son before all time, before all worlds, before all ages, that He is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, one substance with the Father. And that He came as the God who He